0: You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about... Okay guys, we're live. Sorry about the uh, late start, people who are joining us live. It is 8.05. I do apologize. We're having some technical difficulties. Um, but as you can see, we've actually got the snow falling now and it's all looking beautiful. So hey, welcome. Welcome to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, episode 81. Uh, my name is Matt Phillips. For those of you who don't recognize the voice or recognize me live on camera, um, I'm the creator of onechatlive.com. And this is the Sports Therapy Association podcast recorded live every Tuesday, 8 o'clock. Uh, via the STA Facebook page or if you prefer you can join us via the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. So yes we're at episode 81 um, and this is part three of a new format we've got now at the Sports Therapy Association where we are picking a topic each month okay to basically give our speakers um, and the topic itself a little bit more shelf life It was feeling wrong going from one amazing topic to another topic to another topic week to week. Uh, It just wasn't doing justice to the information we were hearing. So we're doing a topic a month, and this month has been all about fascia. So uh, over the last two weeks, we've had the pleasure of listening to Julian Baker of Functional Anatomy and Anna Barrett-Jagarin of Evolved Movement Education. Uh, then last week, we had uh, the magnificent Walt Fritz of Foundation and Manual Therapy Seminars and Tanya Velasquez of Pinpoint Education. Um, if you haven't uh, listened to those, then obviously they're available as a podcast or if you prefer watching the videos, then they're available on YouTube. Um, and also you can watch them on uh, at the sta.co.uk on our Sports Therapy Association web page as well. Um, some fascinating points um, were um, brought up during both of those episodes and again I thank the guests for giving up their time Um, and fortunately we've had a few emails in uh, which I'll be able to select uh, because the idea is tonight um, uh, we're going to answer some of those questions and as always we'll be joined by people who have come into the live lounge at facebook or on youtube so we'll be answering your questions as well um i've got a lovely panel here for you to help answer those questions so it's not just me blabbing on um we were supposed to be joined as well by uh, the magnificent david poulter but We've been having a few technical issues this end. And if you can hear me, David, I can still just see a blank cam. I'm not sure what it's going on, what's going on at our end. But unfortunately, um, it's just not happening. But I will keep my eyes out in case your magnificent face does appear in the feed below. And if it does, then I'll bring you up. If not, I do hope you can stick around and maybe lend us some of your experience from the comments section. Um, If you are joining us live on Facebook or YouTube, then you can bring up comments. Um, for example, let's have a little look here. If I click on Stevie Bar's name, you can see here. If you, um, you're listening to the podcast, and Stevie Bar's name has just appeared on our screen, and he says, "Good evening, one and all. Remember to book your Stevie Therapy course. Discounts offered for early take up." I think that's just Stevie getting used to advertising his own. where's there you go. But that's what you can do subtly. Maybe a bit more subtly than Steve. But this is what you can do. You can network and put your logo up there. And um, other people are coming in the lounge now. So Catherine Reimer, good to see you again. Alistair Cunningham. Gary is here, um, founder of the Sports Therapy Association podcast, or not podcast, that was me, Um, founder of the Sports Therapy (laughs) Association, full stop, and that's Gary Benson. Um, So, yeah, thank you, as always, for those joining us live. Right, uh, let me just check. There's no more housekeeping. Um, Just in case there's not an episode next week uh, because it's the 28th and not even we um, do things like that close to Christmas. So we'll be back um, on January the fourth I think it works out obviously with a brand new season we'll call it season two because it's a new year um I think the topic for January I think I'm not quite sure I'm waiting on a few people is going to be all about CrossFit and the relationship between CrossFit and sports therapist sports massage therapist soft tissue therapist etc how CrossFit has changed over um the years um with regards to our relationship what we think um whether we can basically plan a whole week on just constant injuries or not whether things have changed, so yeah that'll be very exciting um i've got some great speakers lined up for you and once again the last week of January will be a chance for everyone to have a bit of a chat like this with some guests in right then so tonight, rather than keeping them down in the dark, dark damp lounge of Belive live TV um I will start bringing these people up um just hide those messages. Um, we're going to be joined tonight at the panel by um, Liz Bailey, who some of you will know already uh, as being a magnificent guest here on episode 33 and 60. Liz is a physio, uh, originally trained as a sports therapist, also a psychology graduate and a former professional dancer. She's got a very busy diary um, and a uh, fantastic speaker, not just related to dance, but specialising in dance and working with dancers. So check out episode 33 and 60 if you um fancy um we also um like i say david porter was supposed to be here in body as well but we've had some technical difficulties um but we are also being joined by Ilan nane who's a podiatrist and fascial manipulation therapist at podia clinic i'm a trainer in manual therapy at infigo education so i'm really looking forward to that um so we can have a great um variety of responses to all of your questions plus the questions that i've been sent and emailed in so with all that happening i'll bring up um the panel for tonight in no particular order Ah, oh, inny, meeny, miny, mo. Ian, let's bring you up. There you go. <laughs> um, Ian, there you go. How are you doing, Ian? And then we'll bring up Liz as well. I had to do that so it wasn't being blamed for being sexist or anything like that. Hey, Liz. Hey, Matt. Hey, Ian. Hi. How are you doing, guys? Hi. <laughs> um, I don't um,
1: dance. dance. Um, don't get me on that one. But, oh, uh, you
0: lie. I've seen your, <laughs> I've seen the, you, seen the way you move in your clinic. Oh, right, Every
2: yeah. everybody dances that is not an excuse it just <laughs> everyone can dance <laughs> I'm, pretty good. I'm good on yeah. the
1: granddad dance the granddad dance i'm really good at that uh,
0: so that's all right
2: <laughs> All <that> matters.
0: <laughs> um, whilst we're chatting i'm going to be continuously looking um at the bottom here in the lounge because i'm just desperate oh look he's on camera and everything should we try let's try and go. bring david we up we and see what happens are we gonna have a fantastic mm-hmm. hey dave yeah. give me your voice can you hear me? Yeah! It's yeah. yeah. Christmas time. Miracles happening here. I can't on the not believe it. Association podcast. <laughs> yes. I reckon that was just a build up, a bit of like uh, drama, yeah, wasn't it, for his entrance? That's what it was. Yep,
3: that's exactly what I was doing.
0: <laughs> exactly. It was <laughs> happening all the time, mate. I'm so, so glad you could join us. Right, so we are here in full force. That's great news. Well done. I'm sorry if the problems were our end, David, but at least you're here now in person. Right. Okay. So. Huh? I see you've changed oh. your beverage as well. Is that what? Yeah. I mean, so. Um, so, yeah, we are live, um, as I normally say to my guests, but particularly today. Um, can, out of interest, can you see the comments down the side of the screen? Can any nope. of you see the comments? No. No? Not for you, Ian? Uh, no. I, mean, no, I, I think, think the public one I think answering. with an update, then that means you can't see the questions here, but I am keeping an eye on questions on the side. And if anyone who's joined us live has got a question for the whole panel, or for anyone in particular, then you're welcome and I will read it out. I see here there's a comment from, oh, wow, an alter ego, David Clark Poulter, who's written Gremlins here. So that's multi talented. Look, he's even commenting on his own podcast <laughs> episode. Okay. So, uh, yeah, but I have been sending questions in. Um, before we do that, just a brief introduction so we know who is who is on the panel i'll just go in order of people i can see on my screen um you've got like about 60 seconds now ian um right not picking any in particular but no. 59 seconds now to talk about what your relationship with fascia has been and is now take it away began looking into fascial stuff in about 2015 i mean not being
1: particularly involved with it uh i was nudged along by seeing a uh, stack of fascia course being Listed on a, on a CPD group, knew nothing about them whatsoever, but I'd read one of Carla's papers, developed a bit of an interest in it, put off as much as possible doing the course, and then eventually realized I needed to do something because it, the, the subject was gripping me. I won't use the language I actually said, but I, it was gripping me. And, and then I, I just thought, right, I've got to bite this particular bullet and go for it. If it's rubbish, it's rubbish. If it's good, it's good. It doesn't matter. It's the journey. And, and that's really. There you go. That's it. I've been involved now with the bachelor stuff for six years, I think, and then also um, hosting the STECO courses for podiatrists within the UK, having got them approved by our professional
0: body for use by podiatry in the NHS as well. There you go. Fantastic. You know what? I'm going to applaud you straight away, in before we move on to the other guests, because I'm really glad you said yes to this, because I got the impression that... And I hope it's not because of me. Maybe it's just because of the the awe that's around social media at the moment that anybody who actually gets up on camera and starts being positive about Fisher is going to get a bad rap or a bad time. Like booze, like a pantomime or something where they're going to yeah. go on. Ooh, boo! You know, so um, that won't be the case, because I think we've seen in the last two episodes with the other guests that it's not black and white. Nothing no, is when no, you're no, no. dealing with humans, and we'll talk about that later hmm. on. So I'm really, I really appreciate you coming on, um, and um, giving us some of your experience as well. It's, um, not, so it's not my you... medium, mate. It's definitely not my medium. But there we go. Wow, I'm still, I'm still not going to let you get away with with. <laughs> with uh, it's still fantastic to have you here. So thank you, Liz. Welcome back. How are you doing?
2: Hey, Matt. I'm good. I um, do you want me to? Do, I'll do. I'll do a quick intro, shall i
0: Yeah. Go on.
2: I'll do it quick. Okay. So. Yeah, Some of you guys will know, because I've done a couple of these with Matt before, so this is a hat trick, very excited. Um, so I trained initially as a sports therapist, where I definitely learned about my fascial release, and I have used it in the past, and I say in the past because I don't really use it so much now, um, which is probably partly why Matt asked me to be on the podcast. It's not that I think it's terrible, but there's just there's other things that I use, um, so it'll be interesting to see what discussion is and how this develops. Um, I still use manual therapy a lot in the area that I work in because I work in, as you said, I work with professional dancers. So I'm currently the physio on The Lion King, which is in London. I work with a company called uh, West End Osteopathy is the company that I work for within The Lion King. Um, So obviously I work with osteopaths. They do lots of manual therapy. We have lots of discussions about you know, physio and osteo and how different and similar they are. So it's a conversation I have (laughs) regularly. And it's something that I have to deal with often because a lot of my patients want this kind of therapy a lot. And it's whether or not I do it and how I kind of talk to them about it, how I use it, how I reason it clinically and other things that I use on top of it to make my treatments effective. So hopefully I can bring something to the table. But I I encouraged um, Pulse to join this conversation because he's the technical knowledge on this. No No pressure. pressure. No pressure, David.
0: Which is a lovely segue, yes, to Mr. David Poulter. I, I, I can't give you a minute, I'll have to give you 10. Go on, take it away.
3: <laughs> what would you like me to tell you? <laughs> so, this accent I, I'm currently sat in Minnesota looking out the window at the snow, so it, it's minus five. And obviously, mm. this is a Minnesota accent, of course. Mm. I, I, I trained in England, so originally I'm from England, and I, I trained, I'm sadly to say, as I was out cycling this morning, I trained in 1983. So I'm as old as dirt, but my journey's gone around the world. I uh, emigrated to Australia, spent time in private practice in Australia, did all sorts of manual therapy, uh-huh. there, like Baltimore and Syriacs. Francine St. George came to mind because I did her myofascial course in, in Sydney in uh, 1989. So I, I have dabbled in myofascial release in my youth, as I shall call it. Uh, moved from uh, Australia to New Zealand, where I was the uh, McKenzie Diploma Course tutor, then moved the Mackenzie course to the US to here in Coombe Rapids, where I am now. So that was 26 years ago. My last two jobs, believe it or not, has been working in chiropractic offices. And I actually worked as an educator for a company where we did a lot of myofascial release. And my job was to translate the evidence from hands-on to patient-centred self-treatment. So I do have sort of a background knowledge of the fascial studies and the myofascial release literature and the evidence. But as anybody who follows me on Twitter is I'm passionate about evidence and evidence-informed practice. And basically my my bias is patient-centred or person-focused care. So rather than focusing on fascia, I would rather focus on people with fascia.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: brilliant. Yeah, and that's yeah, and that's something on that that's going to it's going to come up. I'm sure quite a few times during our conversation. Um, a, a massive thanks again, David. I'm not quite sure what Liz has got on you in terms of I don't know what she knows about you, but I appreciate that you're here. No um, so, yeah. <laughs>
2: I'll right, tell yeah. you why it's, I was asked I was like oh I, I haven't read anything or thought about fascia in detail for quite a long time And I thought I probably should read something before today so I quickly messaged Pulse and was like hey you'll know this <laughs> so
3: was, I was like, quickly messaged it was 4 a.m my time of course
2: you replied though well done so that's I managed to I and then I was like hey you should probably come on the podcast rather than me just giving a watered down version of this, <laughs> you know so yeah. and he did thanks Pulse.
0: i I can't
3: i can't see you liz but nice to meet you in in voice Um, okay i don't
0: know what's going on with um i don't know what's going on with that normally we can see each other but um but yeah there we go right okay so like i say, i've got some questions which were sent in so thank you to the people who sent me in um, them um i've picked six which there was about 12 in total which is pretty cool really for a podcast that's <laughs> your active engagement so um I've, I've narrowed them down and i've mixed a few together just to make questions which are a little bit more direct um so i'm going to go through them but like i say people in the uh, and it's filling up quite a lot now people who are listening to us live Feel free to enter questions and I will relay them to our guests, okay, as we're talking through stuff. But you may well find that the typical questions are being covered in what's being sent in to me. Um, right, so I'm going to just gonna go bang into the questions, if that's all right with you guys. And then we can kind of take it between us and talk about it as you feel. We might move one to the other or if somebody's got some more input in one more than the other, then we can take it like that. So, are you ready? Hands on buzzers. Question number one. do, 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 do. do, do. right this was in um this was i have heard this is a good one i'm going to start off with because basically what the message from the last two episodes has been challenging this idea that we can directly change the structure of fascia with our hands and there's implications of that some people feel that it's like does that mean we just don't touch anyone anymore because we can't change it because charity says this and blah 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 so this question i thought was a good one to start and it said basically i have heard that we cannot change the structure of fascia with our hands how do we explain the changes that I see at the end of treatments? Who's that master uh, It like I was...
3: a buzzing. <laughs> <laughs> <Cool.
0: laughs> Let's, uh, yeah, we'll go in order that the that God has put you on the screens here. That's pretty oh, random, I, that. I think. Go on then. Ian, you go first. Okay. Uh, so I've got
1: the question down here. I need to reread the question a little bit. Um, I-, I think when it comes to changing anything in an individual, we need to kind of step back from anything that we think we are doing and recognize what's going on within them at a various number of levels. I would be the bio the biological level, social level, the emotional level. Um, and I certainly think over the years I've been doing things, I come more and more to the fact that it's a neurophysiological response to the stimulus I'm providing. And that really is where I think the answer lies is that, I'm not looking to change the tissue. I'm not looking necessarily to improve the range of movement when I work with something. I'm looking to see if I can generate a stimulus. And then once that's done, once there's a change, how do I work with what remains of that in terms of working with that individual, but then to be motivated along to become more self-managing? But that's really for me. So I'm not looking to change anything, say, in terms of tissue. There is some discussion about whether we can change some of the chemistry within that tissue. We can change that with injections. Can we change it with any hands-on work? And there is, again, there's some argument for that one. But I'm not looking to try and change the tissue particularly now. I'm looking to try and generate stimulus. For me, because I work within the foot and the ankle, I mean, I work from the pelvis down as a podiatrist, but in terms of the foot and ankle, I I focus all the work in there purely on a stimulus basis. Um... Similarly, I think the fascia, for me, that I work with, the style I work with, dovetails into that as a neurophysiological stimulus and agent and help. So I don't look to change the tissue. I look to try and see if we can change the chemistry, if possible. The biggest thing I look for is that there is a neurophysiological response of sorts, a change that's evoked from an, an, an internal response, if that makes sense. Is that answering the question? I don't know. I'm trying to answer it anyway.
0: I think that does pretty good for now, Ian. Yeah. I like that so you've you've kind of mentioned biopsychosocial which is going to come up very quickly which is great that's great so we'll take it from there liz
2: um okay so well, interestingly you answered that differently from how i was expecting and i'm sitting here thinking oh this isn't going to be much of a discussion because that's kind of what i was going to say who would have thought, <laughs> the I, Page. Who would have
0: thought?
2: So, I mean the question was you can't change the structure of fascia with your hands or that's kind of what they're inferring and so how come you can see changes after the treatment so I would agree with that I don't think you can change the structure of fascia we understand it to be very tough um it's a connective tissue which can take incredible tensile forces the idea that we can physically change it with our hands I think I think has been proven evidence-wise I don't think we can um I think less and less people believe that that is actually what we're doing although clearly that's one of the myths that drives these kind of therapies onwards even now so i would say the same as ian i don't think we are changing it structurally with our hands because i don't think we can one i don't think we can give Mm. enough force and if we did give enough force it would be excruciatingly painful for the patients um so i agree with what ian said i think it's probably in terms it's a it's a neurological response to a stimulus um it may well be interaction over intervention it could. It very likely has the same kind of effects as any kind of hands-on treatments, so whether that's myofascial release or trigger point therapy or Swedish massage or acupuncture. Or um, cupping. Oh, David, I was about to say it. <laughs> yeah, I was literally, it was on the tip of my tongue. I was going to say, dare I say cupping? Like, yeah, possibly they all have the same kind of effects. And I suspect that certain treatments have better effects for certain people due to their beliefs. Mm -hmm. because if someone expects something to work it likely will do if it's worked for them in the past someone asked me the other day if they should have acupuncture for knee pain and my response was very much not what people expect me to say from what I talk about on Twitter I said to them well have you had it before and did it work and actually this person hadn't had it before so they couldn't give me an opinion but if they had said yes I've had it before and it was great I would not have said no don't do it you know, I, I still believe in you've got to take the person's expectations and wants into account because that will be very, very predictive of their re- response. Probably. Probably. So uh, so I kind of I agree very much with what Ian had said. So and the last part of the question was, how do you account for the changes you see? Well, I would say, um, yeah, kind of repeating myself, but it would be a neuro- neurological effect from an intervention, whether that's pain relief, relaxation expectation fulfilment whatever it is you do see immediate changes after treatments such as myofascial release and many others but I don't think that's from a structural change in the fascia don't think it can be
0: okay which leads nicely on to David I think because you've written about this quite a lot we've mentioned kind of placebo contextual effect and mm-hmm. we don't know how long it lasts for but if we're all kind of agreeing that there is a change but maybe it's more neurological than kind of actual structural change Is it, yeah, I don't want to lead anymore.
3: Let's go backwards in the question. There's an Mm. implicit bias in the question Mm -hmm. because implying how do I account for the changes implies you think they're physical. So I posted on Twitter this morning, not that I post a lot on Twitter, I posted one of my old tweets about a nice side of pork and I actually wrote to Liz and said, dead people don't respond to massage and there's a truth in what I'm saying that if you, if you take a large piece of pork or a piece of meat, you, you can't separate the structures. You can, you can beat it with a rolling pin. It doesn't release anything. It doesn't move anything. It's quite durable. You can't pull the structures. You can't pull the fat and the skin away from the muscle. So the key is there's two humans interacting with each other. And this is where this thing of context comes in. And I, I, I'm a believer that touch is essential for human health. So when you're a practitioner, no matter which form of touch you practice, you're going to have an interaction between two living beings touching each other. And once that happens, you will invoke change. And there's a nice study by Mark Bishop and Spolaski that that Mm -hmm. showed this thing of non-equipoise. If the patient believes, that's fine. But believe it or not, the most powerful contextual effect is the therapist's belief. So this thing of non equipoise you believe so much in the treatment that that passes on to the patient. And that, believe it or not, is 68 times more likely to get a change if the therapist believes in a study, which is quite powerful, isn't it? So practitioners out there that believe in myofascial release will get good results with their patients because there's a contextual element of your belief passing on to the patient. Now, in somebody like myself who may not believe as much, I'll probably get worse results. So it's this thing of context matters. The the people that you see as a practitioner are self-choosing. So they will come to you because they trust in your belief system. And and it's this thing of non-equipoise and belief have the biggest effect on patient outcome than any physical modality that we use.
2: I can believe that completely, David, because back in the day when I learned how to do it and used it, because I was taught certain things and I believed it worked in certain ways, I was way better at it. Yep. You know, she says in, 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 in inverted commas, because I used to give it, I used to sell it to my patients. I was like, oh, it'll do this for you and it'll realign your posture and it'll, it'll change. You know, I can change the way that your restrictions can be, are adhered to each other. And all of that terminology that I was taught 12 years ago, I used to tell to my patients because I didn't know any better and I was brilliant at my fashion release 12 years ago. I'd be rubbish today because I don't believe that anymore. And I haven't got the cell that goes with it. So I believe that hundred percent.
1: That's interesting because I've I come from a belief background in, in terms of my original training and gone through the contemplative stuff, the spiritual stuff and understood the belief was important. Coming into the science background meant that I actually reframed all that and so with my patients, and this is not trying to come against what you're saying at all. I'm just saying that from my point of view, therefore, over the years working clinically, for me, it's presenting the patient with options and explaining why it may or why it may not work um, and where there's strength to support it and where there's differences about it and then just providing that, that, that information to people. And, and so I'm not driven so much by a belief within it but a curiosity factor and giving patients the options, as much knowledge for and against it as possible. And then, you know, because they're there for me to work with them, if the fascial element is part of that approach and that process, I'm comfortable going down that road. But they've been advised as as to, you know, the fact it's, it's one of these things we're exploring. Uh, so I don't really give it a large plug as something that's really great. I'm like, I'm, I'm too sceptical uh even now um a strange statement having come from a belief background originally i was a baptist minister for a number of years so i've I've worked very much within the belief field and um so yeah so it's been that was interesting so I, i need to go away as well and look up the word equipoise i've never heard the word equipoise before so i need to go
0: uh and well, we're confusing words there'll be a, there'll be a long <laughs> list of show notes explaining the vocabulary that mr poulter is using so i'm not disagreeing
1: process. with the idea of belief i think i think all of this is significant um uh but I, i'm coming at that and saying I, i'm i'm not interested in persuading people that it works
0: right i want to jump in here because i've got a question that's on my mind having listened to all of you we're talking about if it works it works it works it works have this effect end of the everyone feels better at the end of it but the important thing is How do we measure actual success? Okay, the client always walks out better, especially with contextual effect. They feel great afterwards, you know. But if it's back to normal the next day, which invariably in my experience it is, or if you're ignoring the times it doesn't work because of confirmation bias. So if we're going to sell something and it's not working in a day's time or – it's actually not working over 50% of the time and we're just ignoring that, then is there an ethical thing here? Is there a moral obligation for us to actually make sure that statistically, if it's measurable, that what we're doing is having a positive effect rather than just saying, oh, it works, they're happy? Any particular order? I
1: think you can apply that question to almost any therapy that we that we do. Um... If I just digress from the fascial element a little bit for one moment, if I, although uh, people I will mention very briefly had a combination of both the fascial work and the approach to foot mobilisation work that I've been dealing with for the last seven years. Um, I've followed some of these people up for seven years now, and that's sustained. The changes have sustained those, both those in terms of how you use the fascial element on and also the foot mobilisation combined or the foot normalisation approach have, have, have been evolving. Uh, that's not a plug because it's not actually running anywhere. Okay. Uh, again, some of them have been pulled up for seven years. And we're talking about here about people who had severe dystonic foot postures and also who were facing amputation because of the complex regional pain syndrome they'd be suffering from. Um, so I, I think for me, I, I have to put my hand up and say there are those people it hasn't worked on. And... Sometimes that might be the relationship between me and them. Uh, there's some people that hasn't worked on uh, possibly because they've come in and they've not believed in anything, but others have chosen to not to believe but suddenly being surprised that something's worked. I, if I'm looking at it, because I work in a very small clinic, so a lot of these people will come back and for, I'll be able to see them again, time and again. On the whole, I would say I'm not seeing that regression after a day or after a week, and in some cases I'm seeing it sustained over many years. But that's that's got to have that potential bias within it all as well. So I I think I'm going to say I'm not I'm not kind of seeing the frequency of failure that maybe you're you're suggesting. That doesn't mean I'm right. It's just that I'm not seeing that. Or maybe it could be that yeah we see a change. But for me the key here, the minute there is change, is to move them on mentally, move them on emotionally. Because I think one of the biggest motivators for self-motivation and recovery is if they experience a change, and they see that something can be different, and then we can move it along.
0: Is that making any sense? I don't know. It's nice, what, it's so nice I'm not used to
1: This kind of forum. So no, uh, it's really
0: nice. I like it, and that's why I'm glad you came along. Um, I'm keen to hear what the others have to say in response. I'm just
1: kind of looking at the other two. Are they shaking their heads, or are they nodding? Are they?
0: <laughs> no, you're, you're a great speaker. I like it. No, it's good.
2: I'm. I'm happy to wait and hear what Dave's got to say. <laughs> <laughs> or I can go. What do you want? Okay. Let, let, let's let,
3: let's let's re, redo the question for him, Matt. The question was: How do we measure outcome?
0: Yeah, because question. yeah.
3: So so but let, let's let's take a step back. What what is the person that we're treating here for? So. It, some of the questions you sent us ahead of time, and, and some of them were based on well, do I care what the effect is, or my mm-hmm. patients are happy at the end of the session, or it feels good, or why do we worry about release? They feel good, and we release tension. So it depends what sort of practitioner you are and what the goal of your therapy is. If, if you're a physical therapist, we generally focus on physical therapy or physiotherapy, but in general, if you look at this, the outcome is based on what the patient requirement of therapy is. What, what does the person seeking care require from us? Are they coming for pain modulation? Are they coming for short-term gain? Are they coming for, I want to get back to running? Are they coming for a physical manifestation of symptoms that are, you know, a disability? Like just mentioned, are they having chronic pain issues? So the question comes is, you measure the outcome based upon what the patient goals are. Now, yes, in the real look, we're not on Twitter, we're in the real world. In the real world, some people are quite satisfied with short-term pain relief. But in the bigger picture as clinicians, we have to have a discussion with them. What is the long-term goal? Because most of the things that we're treating as physical therapists or physiotherapists, we're looking at functional limitations, not just pain. So we have to have some way of measuring a functional outcome. And a positive function in America, where I work, you cannot get paid unless you have functional outcome measures and goals set by the patient. So it's not based on pain levels. And the the reason for things like pain levels not being reliable and paid for is you could be an amputee and have chronic pain, but we get you better functionally. So the main emphasis in America for, for payers and insurance companies are functional goals. Now, if you talk to individuals, they're quite happy to have pain relief. But it's got to be linked. We've got to have the discussion with the patient of if you're coming every week or if you're coming for several sessions just for pain relief, what is the point of that? And is that valuable to you as a patient? Versus are we looking at long-term strategies to get this patient back to a normal lifestyle? So it, but it comes back to what are we measuring the outcomes on? What outcome measures are we? Are we using patient self-directed outcome measures? Are we using patient functional goals, which is my bias? So I have the conversation with the patient or client on day. What is the reason you sat in front of me for? If it's for short-term pain relief, that's fine. We can work on that together or I can find you somebody to work on that with. But most of the time in my practice, it's physical manifestations or restrictions of function that is the main goal for patients. And we will measure that by their goals, um, things like the Oswestry or disability indexes. But it's got to be measurable. This thing of, I perceive people feel better, is fine. You, you could see anybody, it, it, the mm. placebo and contextual response again. But it's got to be sustained over time. It's got to be measurable changes. It can't just be, well, we feel I feel good when I see David he's a nice guy and it you know it's a it's it's got to be a meaningful change in something that's measurable that will be my and because i work in a system where we we have payers i've got to be in that system and have measurable outcomes or else we don't get paid and we don't satisfy the patient needs
0: i think that's really interesting about having measurable outcomes but i think that's a That presents a new problem as well, which I think is often linked to some fascial practitioners. They invent a measurable outcome, which is normally symmetry they're trying to achieve, which the patient didn't come in with. The patient didn't say, I want to have my legs the same length. No one comes in and says that, you know, I want to be have a foot that stays uh, in the middle. Create a
3: problem, create a treatment, fix the problem. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So, and uh, when I when I talk about measurable, I'm talking about scientifically measurable, as in you are gaining functional, you know, endurance. You're gaining ability to lift more weight, your ability to work longer, your ability to walk further, your ability to run better. Not not structural abnormalities, which you know really aren't uh, a scientifically measurable outcome.
0: Yeah, we should repeat that for people who are joining us. Because, again, I, I try and direct this towards people who have just come off courses. And I know from experience being involved in education that when it comes, for example, to sports massage therapy, that the outcomes are are the shoulders the same height? Is the pelvis now neutral? These are still being sold in the UK as your measurable outcomes and signs of success, um, so there is a danger of that, and if you're not familiar with those, then look back across our episodes um to our um when we've talked about posture and the lack of scientific evidence that symmetry is you know linked to um lack of pain or there's plenty of people out there asymmetrical who are in pain. There's plenty of symmetrical people out there who are in pain, so it's kind of something you need to move away from but anyway so so yeah, great words, david thank you very much, Liz. You work with a population who, if anyway, it's kind of pretty cool because they've got a do the show they've got to lift their leg up they've got to it's quite simple whether something's working or not do you find that for that reason people dancers are less likely to go down the road of having lots and lots of sessions which aren't being measured because they know whether it's working or not or is it not that simple
2: yeah I was I was as David was speaking I didn't want to repeat anything but I think they both made fantastic points the only thing that I was thinking that hadn't quite been said yet was the context that things are mm-hmm. done in so like it's not so much in sports therapy but in in physio of course we work in the nhs a lot so ethically we have to work out if a treatment is is actually worth giving patients with the valuable valuable time that they're going to spend you know with that therapist in the nhs with these huge waiting lists so we have to be able to work out i think it's really important in those situations to be able to say is this an ethical treatment to offer someone that you might see once every six to eight weeks you know even if there's a short-term gain are you able to get Carry those effects across? Is this something we can really deliver in an NHS type context? I don't think it is. Generally, manual therapy isn't seen as something that we would deliver in the NHS because it has very specific uh, uses, and uh, that's a whole other conversation, really, isn't it? But just I'm thinking about ethically. Um, but then if you use it, say, obviously, all of my patients are private patients. I work with the same 50 to 60 people every single week, month, you know, whatever. So I see them really regularly. So they are the kind of group that benefit from this kind of intervention i think ethically the the issue for me is when you start to sell it as something it isn't or coerce someone into getting the treatment to get getting them to believe that it works in a certain way that we we don't Mm. necessarily have evidence for that's when i start to get have trouble with it ethically um so but if someone has had it before like i said the person that asked me about acupuncture if someone's had it before and finds it works for them i wouldn't stop them from having it so it's not that I think it's ethically a poor choice of treatment but it might be for certain people um but the population that I work in as you've already said like if we look at what their goal is going from what David said their goal is usually well I need to be able to dance in an hour and I've got back pain or my leg hurts or my ankle's stiff or whatever it is or my, you know my Achilles tendon hurts or something so I do use treatments such as we're kind of going towards general manual therapy as opposed to I mean This is about fast treatment. It can come under the bracket. So um, we often do use treatments like that with that population because their goal at that particular time time is to be able to get on stage in the next half hour to an hour. And, you know, just immediate relief of a problem is vitally important to them. Now, that's why I use it very often. It's why I'm a huge advocate for manual therapy used under the right context with the right background information. I don't missell it. And I back it up with a lot of really well-evidenced physical therapies as well. So rehabilitation and exercise therapy and lots of reassurance, lots of education. So I'm, I'm very, I absolutely believe myofascial release, manual therapy, massage can be used under the right context with the right people at the right time, backed up with the right information. It's a very powerful thing that we can use to help heal people. And I use it every single day. So I have to believe that because it's a huge part of my job. But the way that I use it, I hope, is the most evidence based way possible within a very um, sort of carefully designed evidence based therapeutic technique, I suppose, um, because I I don't like the rubbish explanations that come along with it. Those kinds of things. But dancers are a, a definite population who live by manual therapy and massage acupuncture, myofascial release, cupping. They talk to me about cupping all the time. <laughs> um, in the in, in tweet that went a little bit viral, but mm. it was the one that we were all laughing about, I said, um, a dancer said to me, oh, I'm doing all the right things. I'm getting cupping twice a week or whatever it was. And I kind of, I, I said, that's fine. You can keep doing that, but let's also do this. And we, we talked about why cupping wouldn't prevent injuries. It might make him feel better in the short term but it wouldn't prevent injuries in the same way as myofascial release will not prevent injuries. Let's be very clear about that. So I would never sell it as an injury prevention technique or injury reduction technique. But it certainly is a symptom modification or s- symptom modifier and can be used as thus, I think ethically, within a well-designed rehabilitation program with the correct contextual effects. Does that answer my, my area? Yeah,
0: that's very interesting. And, and, it's, and you're in a unique position where, Using people who need that quick fix. It's like when you put, if you work with a football team and you put some tape on somebody, you say, look you know this is going to last about 20 minutes by the time you're out there moving it's not going to do anything but that's what they need at that point to be able to get on the match but if they're coming to you every single week the same sort of problem you're going to be saying look there's evidence in itself that what i'm doing to you every single game is not working because you're coming back with the same you know lack of function so you're kind of yeah you're using the evidence to fix them but then also you're seeing how this is only short term what you're using is only working short term um so yeah that's very interesting um yeah. Um, coming back to yeah I, I think um
1: it means talking about the functional outcomes i think that's absolutely right i think we, i'd probably call it quality of life uh i think there's probably some if that person's quality of life is improved via a functional outcome i think it's the same kind of discussion there and sometimes when people come along it's not, it's giving them choices in their thinking process which is that if we could get you improvement in your function, but only 20% reduction in your pain, which would you rather have? And they will usually say, well, I'd rather have the function. People are quite often to live with the pain, live with the discomfort, providing they're able to move. So I have absolutely no cartilage left in the bottom of my thumb whatsoever, and it's disappearing from the rest of my hand. I can function with it. It's a problem when it hurts me when I'm functioning with it, but I can still function. And I think, you know, anything allows me to function is something I would like to try and use. So I think the, the function element is quite crucial, but, and I think that can be a really important set of questions to ask somebody from the outset, because it actually puts the practitioner in the place where they have to listen and they have to get an understanding of what that person's looking for and then realistically say, well, which of the armamentarium that I have may actually facilitate some of that? And at the same time as they're listening, they're listening toward the other psychological stuff that's going on within that conversation and within that, and the nuances of how they say things. So, you know, I think I think David hit quite a relevant point there.
0: What about there's... So we're kind of suggesting that a lot of hands-on stuff, it's not doing necessarily what we've been taught it's doing, so we're not actually remoulding tissue and changing structure and kind of underneath our hands, but we're having an effect for a lot of other reasons, which is great. But what about this point of because one of the questions that was sent in a couple of times actually was who cares what is actually happening as long as the patient's walking out feeling better Then why are we spending so much time why am I being shown these research and articles and studies about ah but it's important to know what's happening underneath there and it's important not to say this to your patient what are some of the reasons for us as therapists understanding what is more likely to be happening or maybe is most probably not happening underneath the hands and what effect can have this what negative effect can it have on the patient if we are saying something which is unlikely
3: yeah can i take that one
0: mm-hmm. with pleasure <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, so here's my question as as medical practitioners we should care what's going on under our hands because it, it's not just the positive effects it's what about the negative effects It behooves us to to seek to understand what effect we're having. What happens if there's a negativity or a negative health consequence to what Mm -hmm. we're doing or we don't understand Mm -hmm. the contraindications to what we're doing? It's okay saying, oh, all my clients feel great when they leave. But but is that reality? That's a a biased view of then everybody's fixed or everybody gets what they need. Um, And my concern for us as medical practitioners is, you know, what separates us from just the massage person down the street who just you know does, does makes feel, people feel good? Like you can go to a hairdresser's. If you, you go to a hairdresser's in India, you always get a massage or a head massage or a shoulder massage. What separates a medical practitioner providing hands-on treatment from just a lay person, hairdresser, make you feel good? Or somebody at home doing it, like I massage my wife's feet. I'm not an expert in foot massage, but she likes it. But what would separate me from that as a clinical specialist applying manual techniques to a foot versus just doing a foot rub? And I think that is where this question of, well, does it matter? I think, yes, it does, because there's two elements to that, because we have a moral obligation to tell the truth as we know it or the best truth that we know. So as medical practitioners, we should give the best explanation for what's happening when we apply a technique. I have this model that I say I'm totally in favor of doing manual therapy in the initial phases of acute injuries or chronic injuries, because it it allows us to build a rapport with the patient, especially if they've selected to have a manual technique. It then allows us to get people moving, as we've just talked about, get them more functional and withdraw our hands from that picture. But this thing of, do I need to know what's happening? I I think we probably need to know the best explanation for what's happening Hmm. so that we don't fool ourselves while we're we're treating the patient. Secondly, I think we need to be safe. And so we also need to know what the application of forces do to patients. And I, I saw Ian, actually, I actually researched Ian before I came on talking about manual therapy on another podcast, And I think as a manual therapist, when we talk about mobilisation versus manipulation, there's a safety element of knowing the difference between the two and the effect on tissue when you switch from mobilising to manipulating and what the contraindications are or what the effect on the tissue or the person are. So I think to answer the question as simple, I think the answer is yes. It behooves us probably to have the best... Scientific or plausible explanation for what hands on therapy does, just for safety aspects.
0: There's a good question here, which I'm going to uh, jump in and say because Jamie uh, Gargett, thank you very much for joining us, Jamie. has said, David, what's your definition of a medical practitioner, please?
3: <sighs> it depends which country you're in. Let's stick with
0: the UK for
3: now. So, in the US, in the regulations, I would say anybody who has to license. Uh, it's either a paraprofessional, a paramedical professional. or and, and it's this thing in America, medical practitioners are different than they are in other countries. Medical practitioners in America are licensed medical professionals who are, who are able to see patients by direct access. And I know that differs because hey, I trained in England. I've worked in Australia, New Zealand, Africa and America. So I know there's a difference in what I had this discussion in, in Australia. Physiotherapists don't class themselves as medical practitioners. They're paraprofessionals. In America, we're classed as medical practitioners. So I understand there is a difference. But in America, for le- medical legal terms, it's anybody who practices under a state license in the medical profession. So that will include nurse practitioners, physical uh, uh, doctors, chiropractors, osteopaths, physical therapists. But
2: faculty. interestingly, it wouldn't include sports therapists, would it?
3: We don't have sports therapists. We, we in would yeah. include athletic trainers. Yes. So, yeah, yes. so we, they're, they're different than sports therapists, but it's anybody who has to license, pass an exam and register under a licensing board. Because so in we're, UK we're, we're talking about
0: so basically we're allied health professionals we're talking about in the uk then yeah because it's regulated
3: because your your governing body is an allied Um, professional body
0: but then if i'm not wrong i mean like physiotherapy and i'm only going by what i see on twitter because i'm not a physiotherapist but in physiotherapy still is using acupuncture yeah 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 but that's an
2: extra qualification you're not trained in that in your physio degree
3: not undergraduate.
2: That's
0: postgraduate. Yeah. But in terms so it, of ethics, what you were you talking about before, Liz? I mean, there's. I mean, uh, this might be a. It will be argued, I'm sure, because often there's a link between people who practice fashion and people who believe in acupuncture, because one side of it is following the same kind of idea of meridians and the whole kind of like it's worked for years things. But um, it often <clears throat> interests me how acupuncture. Oh, it's probably not a yes or no question, but there's not a lot of evidence for it, is there? So how come it still kind of flourishes in in physio?
2: no there isn't there isn't much evidence for it at all and the idea that myofascial release follows the meridian lines of acupuncture just goes hand in hand with that so that there isn't great evidence for it from what i understand um uh but yeah you're right but then there's still a lot of stuff that gets practiced under physio that doesn't have great evidence or has poor evidence doesn't it um
0: but you guys are medical and sports therapists aren't
2: but a... remember though, but that,
0: <laughs> you, just... <laughs> you know, I'm not saying I'm just saying, you know, no, yeah, you guys, the medicine.
2: It's on. not it's not under the physiotherapy <clears throat> So like this came on, oh god, I said I wasn't going to talk about cupping, and this is the third time I've mentioned it. But um under that thing, people were having a go at me <clears throat> because they said, But Liz, you do manual therapy. It's the same thing, isn't it? It's all adjuncts. It's all and I argued, no, it's not. We're not trained in cupping under physiotherapy. Lots of people published um, information from the CSP our regulating body which says that cupping is clearly not we're not insured to do it so you need separate insurance those kinds of things um it's, it's a bit of a fine line gray area because manual therapy is manual therapy but then there's manual therapy with tools that someone said to me well would you advocate manual therapy with tools and I, I said no I wouldn't to me partly that's because you start to mechanicalize it it becomes more about what you're doing to the tissues as opposed to the effect you're having on the tissues which we know to be Neurological, which is why I wouldn't use tools in a manual. Th- even though I use manual therapy, I wouldn't do tools manual therapy for that reason. It doesn't go hand in hand with how I believe it works. It changes what you're. you're it, it's like you're trying to uh, manipulate the, the tissue itself, as opposed to have an effect on the person mm. via touch. You know those kinds of things. So to me, there is a difference between treatments, adjuncts that use uh, equipment, cupping, you know, scrapers, that kind of thing, and manual therapy, such as massage I, I'm sure someone could argue differently but that's how I see it and believe it um but I've gone off on a tangent but yes so you're right we are medical professionals but the you should see the conversations that get thrown up in the medical evidence-based part of physiotherapy when something like cupping acupuncture my release gets mentioned I mean it said it's an absolute devastating <laughs> like don't talk about it because it, it's a very heated subject people are very feel very passionately one way or another and it's not uh it's not a simple um, you know area to to deal with because there are gray areas and it's difficult to define
1: if I can bring that back a little bit because um, we're talking about it as medical professionals, but this is sports therapy association and, yeah. uh, and i think um and you know david's right in what he's saying there as well but I may, maybe what this means is that those involved in the sports therapy massage, sports therapy, rehab with the massage, whatever they want to call it, perhaps need to become aware that they're working with a, a powerful medium. And they, they have a responsibility to try and understand that as deeply as possible. Mike, um, are you getting an echo on your end or not? A little bit. A little bit. So I don't know why the second we not know about that. But there's a need for them to try and understand that. And perhaps just like we have to keep raising our game as fresh evidence and insight comes along, so sports therapy's perhaps got to raise its game and saying, you know, it's okay if you just say it doesn't matter what happens under my hands. Uh, firstly, is anything happening under your hands? Secondly, if it is, what is it that's happening under your hands? Because if you end up on the other side of this where you end up doing something and somebody gets injured, you really are going to hope that you had some idea what was happening under your hands and that you were able to explain that whether you were right or wrong actually doesn 't matter in one level it 's that you 've tried to understand and that that could be where we 're having to see the game you know being raised on on the sports therapy side of things now i 'm speaking presumptively Matt, because i don 't know enough about it, and maybe you Maybe you guys are already in that process of raising that game, but it's something that we have to do uh, continually. Uh, and I think that's—I just—I just put that out there because I'm trying to come back to that question about from from the sports therapist and not so much from us as a medical yeah. practitioner side of things. Really, um, I would like to see that. I'd like to see sports therapists, leaders, just begin to move that up. Um, and, and I don't know how you do that. Anyway, I don't know, I'm don't i chipping in there. Sorry about that. I'm just worrying about what David's been listening to about me, it That's what it is. <laughs> it's, 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 it's I, I've, I've
3: researched everybody. So, anyway, <laughs> let, let me just come back to that. I, I think everybody's right. So, as sports therapists, why would you not want to know what was going mm. on? That, that'd be my question. I think that's the summation. Mm. And just to come to Lizzie's point, I, in America, we're one country, but we're 50 states. And in my no, state, no, no. it's illegal to do acupuncture if you're a physical therapist. Unless, you're, unless you are a registered, trained acupuncturist, you can't do acupuncture. But you can do dry needling. And this is where no. dry needling crosses the threshold. And that's why physical therapists do dry needling, not acupuncture, because it's within our scope of practice, which sounds absolutely bizarre, doesn't it? So, and it depends which state you're practicing. So as a physical therapist in America, you have to be registered in your individual state and can't practice in another state. So we have different rules for the 50 different regions of America. So if you think it's complicated difference between sports therapists and physiotherapists, imagine having 50 different sets of rules in one country.
0: Definitely. Um, there's a question I want to raise. because uh, I, wish, I wish it could be personally i wish this could be two hours i'm sure you guys don't but andy glover's raised a really good question here which i want you guys to uh peruse over um if we don't know what's happening under our hands or not how can we express that to our clients to gain their informed consent yeah. it's quite a good is not it i think i'm going to say to that
1: one we, we 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 need to be able to present them with potential and possibilities because that's the important thing i can't turn around and say to somebody look the theory is that if we can change the chemistry that lies within the extracellular matrix, we might be able to change the capacity of fascia to slide. We might be able to have an effect upon muscle force transmission, all of these things. Now, that that's a theory. That's something that you could present to those individuals. I'm not sure quite how my fascia manages, but if you're going to do that, you've presented them with a theory. You've given them some idea. And I think it's about, saying if you're looking at it from, from Andy's point of view, what are some of the thoughts, processes behind how what they're doing may actually be happening? Patients are given informed understanding, and from that basis, they can give consent. If you say, like, I'm going to rub this, but I don't know what's happening, you've, you've really stepped well outside any safe bounds. And you've also stepped outside, I would say, the moral bounds of being in having a right to lay hands upon that person
0: and even see. though that statement may be actually more kind of scientifically backed than anything else you just said before <laughs> about the cellular matrix, um, yeah, that's no, an interesting one, isn't it? It's very interesting. Um, sorry, I was a bit sort of off there with that. No, no,
1: I, mean, both, but I, I didn't quite. I, I mean,
0: I, I question everything. I do. No, but sometimes <laughs> the most accurate thing. We've had this conversation about you'll feel better. Artists are not quite sure that yeah. might be the most actually the most um morally correct thing to say. Look, I'm not quite sure what the mechanism here, is, but I know that. For example, massage has been shown to reduce anxiety and depression. I can see that you're in a state of anxiety. I'm going to do this massage because somehow I'm not quite sure how. Rather than creating this kind of this is what I'm doing structurally, and this is what I'm that's where sometimes giving an explanation to the patient to try and get that informed consent is where we slip into this kind of structures ideas of trying to back up what we're doing when they just came and say, I want to feel better. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I
3: think, I think the best explanation, Matt, and the most evidence based application is. You're alive, and the only difference between you and a piece of meat is your nervous system's functioning. So whatever we're doing to you by our touch, whether it's light touch, whether it's more firm touch, whether it's deep touch or structural deep massage, we're having an effect on your nervous system. And that will play into A, your muscles will change their tone. B, the tissues may feel like they're releasing and C, it will be well-being because we know your nervous system is connected to your brain, which is the right. centre of anxiety. <clears throat> the truth is, no matter what we do to any patient, it's the nervous system. Right. And I know they joke about it on Twitter. Everything, every single thing we do, whether it's contextual or whether it's touch, is affecting the nervous system. Because, as I said, dead people don't benefit from massage. Only living people do.
2: Yeah, that's how I explain it to my patients I always go with that kind of whatever the intention is it seems to affect the person in a similar kind of way it's the nervous system that's why you get immediate effects that's why it affects, you feel it emotionally as well that, that's that's always how I kind of I, I what I don't like about manual therapy and I've already said it is the the bs explanations that people give because I think that comes under the not being able to give true informed consent because you're told it's going to do such and such, and you say, okay, I'll, I'll have that treatment because it's going to do this. That's not really true, is it? Like you're, you're, you could say anything, and that, that to me seems unethical and it seems unnecessary. I don't think we need to have rubbish explanations for treatments. They still work, although we also know, as David started by saying, your ability to sell that treatment may well have an impact on how effective it is, mm-hmm. which is probably what tempts people into those BS explanations, maybe.
3: The car salesman
2: exactly
0: it's tricky we could have a whole episode i think on placebo and contextual effect it's it's a fascinating area and how much you can actually charge for services like that by just telling people it's going to be okay i mean that's what parents do the whole time and they don't charge their kids yeah. it's the same kind of thing it's tricky yeah. and some people are paying a hundred dollars a hundred pounds an hour you know for somebody to basically right. say that and give them some neil, touch
3: neil o'connell wrote a nice paper a blog about uh, it's called magic kisses and rational hugs The two common things used in therapy. Magic kisses are like manipulation, acupuncture, and rational hugs are the neurophysiological explanations that we give to things. So that's what we're in the business of magic kisses and rational hugs.
0: Okay, look, so I wish the time was running out. It's gone quicker than any other episode, I think. Okay, one of the other things I had in, um, and again, it was from somebody who is a little bit biased, but they raised some pretty good points in the fact that we know that fascia is underneath a whole load of skin and and to touch somebody and affect them if we're saying it's neurological then there's even if you even if you read into the idea that fascia has got few scarcely kind of muscle cells and things in it and it has got a slight kind of neural connection even though they're very short-lived and it's very difficult to stimulate them on your back for example there's kind of maybe up to four inches of skin which is really nervated and that's where all the action is going to happen and connect to the brain and it's a bit connected to something which somebody asked here should we is there an ethical problem to selling a course that is saying I'm affecting your fascia? Is that stepping over a line because of the physiological boundary, the actual structural boundary, or, or is that still OK? Obviously, it's quite a loaded question for you, Ian. you do sell courses, which is kind of fascial manipulation. I'll go to you first, Ian. How do you overcome that problem that there's a whole chunk of skin on top? How do you separate the idea that I'm affecting your fascia now and not affecting the skin? that was a couple of things that came up in the emails I received. So, yeah,
1: I do host the courses. And I host the courses because I found the process and approach for me as a clinician at the time of learning them to have a logicality about them and a systematic element to them, which tied in with how I might approach the biomechanics side of things that I deal with. And I found that to be really, really helpful. Um, obviously the stack of alignment that I'm involved with they would discuss the idea that we're making chemical changes That's what they're looking to target rather than make any structural changes to the tissue themselves So I can't alter the fascial structure. Just, I just can't do that um, But potentially I might be able to alter some of the the, the chemistry just by the rubbing side uh, There's various ways you might look at that. There's the fluid dynamics fluid mechanics uh, Chowdhury et al. were looking at that one is that the minute you rub something within a closed system, it moves it around. Does that actual, is it simply the movement of something within a closed system that generates a flow around that? That Steckles would argue that there's a sense in which we're creating heat and then we're also creating an inflammatory action. And they would suggest that that's part of what goes on. I would also go further and say, actually, before you get to the superficial pasture or the deep pasture, you're going through the cutaneous receptors. And There may be elements of those cutaneous receptors that also have a tie into that. So don't see fascia as simply a fascial thing on its own. It can't be. It's just part of a whole system. I'm going to digress slightly here. So for seven years, in 2014, I encountered an experience with someone's foot uh, that was severely dystonic and had complex regional pain syndrome where they'd had three toes amputated. They were left with the two toes permanently stuck in the air for three years. I worked with that foot, 20 minutes, the next thing I knew is both those toes dropped down. So what? So what I had to do was spend the next 70 years trying to work out, could I repeat it? Does it apply to everything else? And then I have just recently completed a post in the professional body saying, actually, for me, I've moved away from joint mobilization as we traditionally use it. And I think I've managed to understand that working with some of the fascia and fascia receptors, but particularly cutaneous receptors within just three centimeters of the medial arch of the foot Seems to be enough to target a neurophysiological reaction. So don't separate fascia from the nervous system, from the skin. It's all linked in there. But if I am being asked, do I, am I using fascia from the point of view? Yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable at the moment to so go down the line of, yeah, I'm possibly making some changes in the chemistry. And that, that, that's, I guess, where my thinking is in the current process. But I then try and read different views on that as well. And I think the important thing is that it's not to be hooked into one particular dimension of this. It's far more than that. I know the other two are going to have a good little go at me now on
0: that one. I doubt it, Ian, because you ask really, you answer really nicely. It would be impossible to have you. I was, I was <laughs> hoping to. Instead, I'm thinking, oh, I can't do it. It's really good what you're saying. Yeah, well, good answer. All
2: I would say is, is that your question was, can we sell it as a fascial technique oh. when it clearly affects all the other structures as well you can't take the fascia out of the body so black and white as you ask it no i don't think we can actually it's interesting isn't it but i mean so no i don't think you can but people will does it really matter i think the problem there
1: is that you (laughs) anything you're going to look at i mean for example from the biomechanics point of view can i sell orthotics as 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 the answer to back pain kind of cellular orthotics is the answer to improving your mobility to get rid of pain. I, I think any and this is not me defending anything, it's just like I was, in, I was in the role of orthoses, I was in the role of all those things as we all are. Anything where you're practicing medicine of sorts, you are you are presenting something as well. it's potentially got a silver bullet to it. Where, where the issue lies is if you actually don't explain to those people you're running the courses with, uh, to those people who are attending, actually you know, this, is, this is just a part of trying to give you an overall armamentarium to improve your practice, then I think those people then can come on those courses and they can understand that, and one of the things that people will say to you when I host those ones is that, this is just another tool, this is a, a possibility, this is an option, uh, but actually you know, take that away and have a think about that. I think the other way in terms of me trying to, um, trying to have a level of integrity around it is to take what I do, whether it's a foot mobilization course or whether it was a passage, submit it to those people who can actually analyze it objectively, not with my bias, who's got the brains to question it, and they come back with those questions. And that's, that's giving it, like, if you wish, a, a higher level educational input for them to assess it. And if they give that approval, then it's like, right, okay, it, it's, it's given them, but it's given on the basis of, you know, don't sell this for any more than what it is. Mm -hmm. that makes some sense is that am i does that make some sense i'll let you know in a second david (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm loving this one come on i'll I'll attack this from a (laughs) (laughs) different
3: i'll attack this from a different position so i I think i started off early in the piece stating this people come to see us fascia doesn't It's this thing of primacy of the whole there is no such thing as fascia Living in the universe, we, we, we deal with humans and I'm presenting on this next year in San Diego. People focused, person focused. We, we lose sight of the fact that it is human suffering, humans in pain. I suffer, I feel, I am in pain and I have restrictions. I've never met a person who came and said, I think it's my fascia. This is all clinician speak. It means nothing to the individual. I always say the same thing. Every time I meet a person in pain who says, it's my SI, I already know this in another practitioner <laughs> or they've been on Dr. Google. Look, it, the primacy I'll suggests this. It, we're a human ecosystem living in an ecosystem and our interactions, it's the enactivist approach, our biopsychosocial and yeah. environment determines how we behave and feel. So fascia muscle bone connective tissue skin nerve muscle form bits that we dissect in a lab and are not humans the the element of being human is different than splitting us up into bits so i would say no matter what happens the interaction is it's two people need to seek to understand find solutions to a problem and listen to the person's goals. I don't care what you call it or do to them as long as the solution is what the patient wants. So I don't believe that fascia exists. I just believe that people exist who when you when we dissect them, you can find this connective tissue called fascia. Now, whether it leads releasing or not, I have no idea. But I've never met a person who came and said, Hey, I think my fascia's tight. And would you release it unless you've seen some clinician?
1: <laughs> yeah, good points. Great points. Um, Interestingly enough, I'm, I'm actually I won't, I won't give what where it's happening, but I'm going to be giving a talk somewhere next year uh, with a whole bunch of fascia people, and my topic is fascia in the biopsychosocial context. Just looking at it is trying to see it as you know whatever we whatever we're working on. It's about it's about being maybe maybe somebody's outcome measure actually facilitates them getting more fully into dealing with their their psychosocial context because we've, you've kind of a, given them a motivational change. So, you know, from that point of view, I, I I'd agree, I'd agree with David and, and Liz, you know, so that's not a problem at all.
0: Right. I mean, uh, so annoying, so frustrating for me as host to have to draw this to an end. Um, it's going against every single cell in my body. But hey, um, I do want to point out, though, one thing because i do feel for people like sammy jack who is just i'll bring it i'll read it out put it up on the screen for those who are watching but sammy jack has said why are we taught my str trigger point in our sports therapy degrees and written reports and case studies on each specific technique i can hear the anger in their voice oh. so basically these techniques were money spinning for the individuals who invented them and it's a neurological response to touch question mark apologies having qualified as a sports therapist this year with a first i'm struggling uh, myself to see where we fit in as a sports therapy uh scroll that up a bit <clears throat> um feeling a little bit disappointed to be honest after spending four years studying all this and believing what i was taught however that being said i have a great results on various manual therapy techniques that's why kind of we on the sports therapy association that's exactly the kind of response which drives us to kind of try and talk about these things because it is frustrating <clears throat> and it kind of i think just depends i mean if you'd had Ian, for example, talking to you about fashion and release and stuff, would, you would you wouldn't be spitting out this now because it basically depends on the teacher. The exams, I'm sure it's similar in the States and probably most countries, the exams yeah. are still backwards and it's up to the tutor to you need to pass exams in life and tick boxes and sometimes too much too soon just ruins you and you're not ready for it. You can't handle the truth yet, as someone said in a film once. But yeah, it's up to <laughs> the teacher to actually package a little bit more into the syllabi don't have a go necessarily at the teacher they were probably working speaking as educator myself they probably had a time limits and they just had a class to teach but there is a responsibility i think in education to update what you're being given in the syllabus because most syllabi i can say in the uk are pretty backwards and if you're only taught on the syllabi then you, you'd, you'd be doing a disservice to your students but no, don't but worry sammy I, don't I worry just,
2: can i just say and to sammy as well i i feel sammy's frustration mm. totally i mean i was was a sports therapist and then retrained as a physio partly because i got a little bit disillusioned with some of the things that i was taught i didn't feel like they were relevant i you know lot, lots of different reasons but surely this comes down to the regulating bodies and the institutions that are teaching this stuff like that's where it comes from so that's who we need to target obviously i mean it's not sammy's fault she sat through lectures all about things that might not be as relevant as we now know they are you know manual therapy is relevant but maybe we can just teach manual therapy it doesn't need to be broken down into a lecture Mm -hmm. you know an, an essay on trigger point therapy and an essay on this you know it is a relevant thing so it's not that what you've learned is useless by any means It's going to be, you'll definitely use it and it's good to understand what they, even from a historical point of view, if you're going to Mm -hmm. work with patients and be in healthcare, it's good to know what those things are because it's, it's what it's been built on a little bit, not healthcare, but well, sports therapy and, and some physio and a lot of manual therapy. So it is valid, but we've got to go high up. It's got to come from the institutions because the students, it's not their fault what they get taught. That's my final word on it. It drives me mad. I don't know why why it's so. release is still being taught. I tweeted about this the other day. Someone did a massage course last week and they were taught about so release. Mm. That's
0: on a, on a level five though. You don't learn that level three. You've got to work your <laughs> way level five to well, get to the serious stuff like that. That's the way knows? it is. It's a shame, and we laugh about it. But but yes, yeah, Sammy, it's not. And I think anybody because we've all been there. We've learned stuff, and I wouldn't. Get rid of anything from my brain that I've been taught, even though I've moved on from it, because it makes you into a better therapist. It's useful to know that that's what makes you more critical. We wouldn't criticize ourselves if we didn't realize that we were taught things which weren't necessarily 100% true. So it's not a waste at all, Sammy, and you'll be a better therapist for every second you spend studying it. There's a certain thing, Matt, in that she'd learned all that from a historical
1: point of view, unless we know where we've come from. Histor- you know, historically, we don't know why we are where we are.
2: Yeah, that was and my point. Have, totally, and we don't uh, actually yeah.
1: understand understand what's driving us to where we're going. So, to have a history of be- behind them is really, really good and important. There may be one person to use it on, but that history there is meant to drive you forward and move you onwards. But you've got to have it, and I think oh yeah, that's it's there. You've got to have it, but maybe it's overemphasized in terms of its value and importance.
0: There you go. Yep. Yeah. Very true. You don't, know you don't know where you're coming from. But like as Gary's already um, mentioned that he's happy to chat with you. And I know Gary Benson, there'll be news coming up with this. We are one of the big things at Therapy Expo recently was a lot of non-STA members going, well, the problem is there's not regulation. Why don't all the bodies come together and talk? Why can't we just have one clear message? And it's hard. It's easier said than done. There's a lot of political and financial and all sorts of other reasons. But it's something which the SDA is trying to get involved in. And we'll have news on that soon, trying to bring people together a little bit more and give one clearer message. Um, There you go. Oh, Sammy, you have put me in a bad mood now. I can do that. I was on a high with David's last comment and now Sammy made me all depressed. How do you feel? No, I'm joking um, <clears throat> I hope Sammy this has been useful to you and don't forget you have now got the fantastic role of helping mentor other therapists who be in the same situation right. as you Direct them towards any of our guests or any of the people you've seen on the Sports, mm-hmm. Sports Association podcast because sometimes it's hearing the message from the right person which kind of strikes the right nerve and that person might be different from all of you but you'll find one person who will be able to kind of put it away that'll make you think I'm not a waste of space right. you know it's good that I've done all this it's really important that you find that person Sammy so good luck with that Right, gang, um, it's 9.20, way over time, way over time. Apologies. I'm sure you've got better things to do than this. But um, this brings the end to our month on fascia. Um, We will be keeping the topic going obviously if you do have any comments if you listen to the podcast then feel free to uh email questions to matt at the sta.co.uk or you can find um the live feed still on facebook go to the youtube channel use that keep the conversation going keep that shelf life going because it's all very active i can contact um, the speakers, any of the speakers we've had, some of them don't mind talking on social media at all. You'd be you'd be interested to know. They, they, some of them live on it. Some of them cycle away for 10 hours a day while still tweeting. <laughs> it's incredible what some people do. But yeah, so keep the conversation going. Don't let it just end with this episode. Um, and we're in, in the show notes, there'll be um, contact details for all of the guests we've had and obviously all the guests we've had for the rest of the month as well. So we'll be doing that. Um, in fact, Jake Benson, son of gary benson and actually taller than gary is uh says matt all the web chat partners are live on the website now great so make sure you do go to the sta.co.uk for further information all the pod sites are linked all the podcasts are linked there um final comments people just to wrap it up i don't know i just want to i just want to say david say something because i know that's going to be pretty profound but i don't want to go straight to, to mr polter i'm leaving time <laughs> Ian, has it, what do you think is the one takeaway for people? Let's stick on the idea that people who have been on courses which have been selling this thing, um, traditional ideas, put your fingers on here, feel the pound coin menthol, the margarine, it's changing from gel to soul and back again. All these things, if they've been told it and now they're reading sometimes quite violent stuff on social media going against it, what's your take-home message kind of thing to keep them from being totally disillusioned or angry or just shutting the door?
1: Well, it's a journey, basically. And wherever you start it, you're going to go through various avenues, various paths. You'll go around those circles sometimes and come back and keep repeating it. The key is to draw from that and learn from that as you go through it, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, do I do I use the stack-on method? Yes, I do. Do I feel as though there's some changes? Yes, I do. All age groups and things. Uh, but it is a method. <clears throat> it's a method. It's a model. And and just look at all of these things for what they are. They are models, and you are journeying through a landscape of models. Pick from them, learn from them, but be willing
0: to leave them behind. Very nice, Liz.
2: Oh God, it's hard. <laughs> to <people. I> just, <laughs> I'm just going to say something quickly. I'll I'll leave it to David to do the profound thing at the end, and I'll okay, take, yes. I'll take it. I'll take the credit for him for getting David on, so you can all thank me because, because down <laughs> <Right. laughs> Um no, all without Liz,
0: say, David wouldn't even be on social media. Yes, yeah, me.
2: okay. without yeah,
0: without Liz, that wouldn't, <laughs> exactly. wouldn't exist. Exactly. be like oh right. okay. people
2: are going to think you're serious. Don't don't say that because people think you're serious. Um, See, the
1: wind beneath my
3: wings. Wings. Oh.
2: I
1: mean, I'm start singing. I funny. was
2: going to say one thing, and I totally forgot what it was. Oh, I know what it was. If you're, I've been through this thing of, I learnt this. It doesn't seem to be what I thought it was. It's all a bit disillusional. I, I feel like what whatever I do is pointless. I've been into all the stuff myself. And all I say is that I'm glad you know, be happy that you're learning that now and not in five, ten years, twenty years from now mm-hmm. and finding out when it's, you know, too late yeah. and you haven't got time to change what you're doing or learn more. So just be glad that you're you're on the train now so you can start learning more, adding to your knowledge. And remember, there wasn't a medical professional alive today that was doing what they were doing now. years ago it's it evolves constantly and there's there's incredible therapists David will be one of them who have been in the business for many years who actively say I didn't do this 20 years ago it's completely different so if it wasn't for these conversations it wouldn't have evolved to where it is now Mm -hmm. and it'll be evolving forever I imagine so you've, you've got to be part of that
0: good words i think yeah and i think david's a bit worried now about (laughs) that (laughs) very good it's true be part of it yeah
3: so my final comments 38 years of wisdom number one we are responsible to patients not for them and this is what i've learned i've stopped trying to change people by doing stuff to them and i've started to listen better to patients to help them change themselves it's not what I do, it's what they do.
1: Hmm. So really, it. we're all saying
0: the same thing. I think that's We're, we're, the we're all that very
3: really. agreeable people. That's what the yeah. answer is. Yeah.
0: But that's a massive take-home message as well, is even though you might... Yeah, be nice to each other. That's my final one. Because you yeah. will discover oh. that even if you think someone's doing something which you are totally against, rather than getting onto to some kind of soapbox on twitter and go oh these guys are all terrible Ha ha, they're doing this they think you're doing this the chances are these people are doing it for the benefit of the patient we're all kind of on the same page we're in this living because we want to help other people so if you've got a news resolution and you find that you are kind of standing on a soapbox especially on social media poo-pooing another profession or somebody who worked with fascia or somebody who believes in this Even, yeah, I'm not going to say even, but I'm not going to bring up cupping again. But, you know, something which you really don't think is very beneficial and is overdone um, with celebrity photos all over social media. Um, But, yeah, anything like that. Have a chat with them rather than talking about them, because we're all in this industry to help the patient. At the end of the day, most of us probably, 94%. Do you not think that we've actually got the situation whereby
1: the manual therapy debate has ceased to be a debate? It's become a battle round. Desire
0: yeah. to win the argument. We've lost the capacity to debate. The Outside to of the Sports great. Therapy Association podcast, I would agree Absolutely. with you. <laughs> but <that>? this is <laughs> why this is why you know we exist, and we don't want it to be a battleground. It has become horrible in social media. It's one of the disadvantages, and I think yeah. that social media is slowing down evolution of therapists. You know, it used to be like thirteen years for research to get into clinical door. I think social media is slowing down the change of therapists. People are just going, "This is just ridiculous." I don't like you shouting me. Shut the door. Yeah. So we've got to be careful with that. We're ruining as at all. Anyway, it's okay
3: nice. to disagree, you just, you just don't need to be disagreeable.
0: There
1: you go, there you go, that's the I have t-shirt. to ask another question, David, where are you from originally?
3: Uh Where would you think I'm from with this accent?
1: Well, I don't know, I am not staying in Manchester originally. And I'm, well, I'm
3: just... I can tell you, you're Ooh. just about 20 miles down the road, born in yeah. Great Hollywood, near Blackburn.
1: I thought so, yeah, you're just up there, yeah, you're just up the road, yeah. yeah. There you go, I, haven't lived
3: you. In, I haven't lived in the UK for 32 years, but I haven't lost my accent. Yeah,
0: no, you won't do. No, great. Still 28 people talking about different boroughs of Manchester listening into us in this conversation. We better, <laughs> we better wrap it up. Right, gang, thank you so much for uh, joining us um, in Linnane. Liz Bailey with the BAY and David Poulter, thank you so much. Um, I wish you all a Merry Christmas. And um, just to reiterate um, Gary's words out there, um, apart from the thanking me a bit but thank you to all of our guests through the year facilitating some great educational content in 2021 and we do all look forward to 2022 and um, gary is happy to speak to any sta member or industry stakeholder on any industry matters that's something we'll be tackling in 2022 um so there you go right merry christmas all i'll let the guests merry say christmas. merry christmas, yep. and we'll merry sign christmas. Out. And see you. you in 2022 you're listening to the sports therapy association podcast